Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing on in our ongoing series on the life of Jacob with our scholar-in-residence, James Jordan. Here he'll be in Genesis chapter 31, verses 17 through 30, and we'll begin to look at the events of Jacob leaving Laban. In particular, he'll discuss how the kinsmen are right there as they go back and forth with their different speeches, and how the scene is shown to be two camps that are against one another. We hope that you enjoy this time of teaching, and we want to thank you for listening. And here is James Jordan in Genesis chapter 31 on the life of Jacob. We're in Genesis 31, and we have come to... Jacob's departure from Laban, and last week we made a little thematic study of that. This week we'll start walking through the text, and we'll begin in verses 17, and I'm going to read this passage so we get it in our ear, and then we'll start into it. So Genesis 31, verse 17, and following. So Yaakov arose, and he lifted his children and his wives onto the camels, and led away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the acquired livestock of his own acquiring, which he had gained in the country of Aram. Let me point out to you, there's nothing there about stealing anything. Big emphasis by the narrator, who is the inspired narrator, that this was all legally earned. To come home to Yitzchak, his father, in the land of Canaan. Now Laban had gone to shear his flock. Rachel, meanwhile, stole the teraphim that belonged to her father. Now Yaakov stole the heart, literally, stole the heart of Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he was about to flee. And flee he did, he and all that was his. He arose, and he crossed the river, setting his face toward the hill country of Gilad. Laban was told on the third day that Yaakov had fled, and he took his tribal brothers, his kinsmen, with him, and pursued him a seven days' journey, and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilad. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream of the night, and said to him, Be on your watch, that you do not speak to Jacob, Yaakov, either good or evil. When Laban caught up with Yaakov, Yaakov had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Levan, along with his brothers, had pegged his tent in the hill country of Gilad. Levan said to Yaakov, What did you mean to do by stealing my heart and leading my daughters away like captives of the sword? Why did you secretly flee and steal away on me, even without telling me? For I would have sent you off with joy and with song, with drum and with lyre, and you did not even allow me to kiss my grandchildren and my daughters. You have done foolishly now, and it lies in my power to do all of you ill. But yesterday night the God of your father said to me, saying, Be on your watch, lest you speak to Yaakov good or evil. Well now, you had to go, yes, go, since you longed, you longed for your father's house. Why did you steal my God? Yaakov answered and said to Levan, Indeed I was afraid, for I said to myself, Perhaps you will even rob me of your daughters. With whomever you find your gods, he shall not live. Here in front of our brothers, kinsmen, 
If you recognize anything of yours with me, take it. Yaakov did not know that Rachel had stolen them. And Laban went into Yaakov's tent, and he went into Leah's tent, and he went into the tents of the two maids, but he did not find anything. Then he went out of Leah's tent and went into Rachel's tent. And Rachel had taken the teraphim and had put them in the basket saddle of the camels and had sat down upon them. And Laban felt all around the tent, but he did not find anything. And she said to her father, Do not be upset, do not let upset be in my Lord's eyes that I am not able to rise in your presence, for the manner of women is upon me. And he searched, but he did not find the teraphim. And Yaakov became upset and took up a quarrel with Laban. Yaakov spoke up, saying to Laban, What is my offense and what is my sin that you have dashed hotly after me, that you have felt through all my wares? What have you found from all your household wares? Set it here in front of your brothers and my brothers, that they may decide between us two. It is twenty years now that I have been under you, your ewes, your Rachels, the Hebrew word there is Rachel, you lamb is the word Rachel, your Rachels and your she-goats have never miscarried, the rams from your flock I have never eaten, none ripped apart by beasts have I ever brought you, I would make good the loss, at my hand you would seek it, stolen by day or stolen by night, and such I was, by day Parching heat consumed me, and cold by night, and sleep eluded my eyes. It is twenty years for me now in your house. I have served you fourteen years for your two daughters, and six years for your animals. Yet you have changed my wages ten times over. Had not the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the terrorizer of Yitzhak been there for me, indeed you would have sent me off now empty-handed. But God has seen my being afflicted and the toil of my hands, and yesterday night he decided. And that's where I'm going to stop. I don't think we'll get that far, but that's enough. What's going on here? Well, let me ask you something. As you read this and as you've read it in the past, what do you see as the scenario here? Laban catches up with Jacob. Laban accuses Jacob of things. Jacob answers Laban. Laban has more things to say. Jacob has more things to say. Is there anything more to it than that? I think we forget that these kinsmen are here. And all of these speeches are done in the presence of the jury. That's why these speeches are the way they are. These aren't private conversations. Laban doesn't come up to Jacob and say, Why did you do all this to me? And Jacob says, well, you did this to me. No, these other guys are all here. In fact, they're formed up like two armies about to go to battle with each other. That's the way it's described. We'll get to it in a minute. And now, actually, a court is being held, so to speak. And Laban's kinsmen, who are by in-laws of Jacob as well, they're going to decide who they're going to punish, if anybody, and what's going to happen here. And so all of these speeches are played to an audience. And that's quite here in the text. And I think that's something that's often overlooked. I mean, we kind of have in our minds, again, from the time we were little, 
a picture of Jacob and Laban arguing this out as private individuals, and that's not what's happening here. So to start with, I want to make that point, and now we can look at the text and see some of the things that are here. Verses 17 and 18. Jacob arose, and he lifted his children and his wives onto the camels. That's literally, of course, what you have to do to get people up on camels. And he led away his livestock, and then the language here piles up. I mentioned it as we read it. Notice it again. All his livestock, his property that he had gained and the acquired or gained livestock of his own acquisition, which he had gained in the country of Aram, Aram. Now, when Laban comes, he's going to say, all this is mine and you stole it from me. But the narrator tells us, what we already know, that Jacob earned all this and it's rightly his. It's not Jacob saying, hey, I earned this and it's mine. This is the comment of Moses, Joseph, the Holy Spirit, who is the narrator of the passage. Well, there's no doubt he did not take anything that wasn't his in this verse. And he does it to come home to Isaac, his father, in the land of Canaan. I think sometimes we overlook that phrase, land of Canaan, but this is still the land of Canaan. It's been promised to the patriarch, but it's not theirs yet. It's still the land of Canaan, the slave of slaves, the grandson of Noah. So we don't really have this land yet. It's just promised, but Isaac is there, and he's going back. Then we're told in verse 19, Laban had gone to shear his flock, and we don't need to be told that at this point, except that it tells us why Rachel could get by with doing what she did. Laban was gone. All the men were gone. Shearing is a big deal. The various tablets from Mari and Muzi and all these things around the ancient world tell us that it would take several days. A great company of men would come together to do this. They would try to do it all at once. They'd have a big feast. You know, they drink and carry on, and it was a big event. So everybody's gone for this. And she sneaks in and takes away the teraphim. Now, what are teraphim? This is kind of the $64,000 question on this verse because it's really fairly unclear what they are. There's some things we know about them, and there's some things that are almost certainly good guesses about them. One thing we know in this passage, they're called gods. Why did you steal my god? We have to remember what is a god in the Bible. We're so used to thinking of gods as the supreme deity that we forget that in the ancient world and in the Bible, the word god is used for rulers and governors and anyone that has power. Actually, the word El means power. And the word Elohim means powerful ones. Now, in context, we know when it talks about, in the beginning, the powerful ones created the heavens and the earth, Elohim, we know that that's God. The omniscient, omnipotent, etc., only true creator God. But there are passages in the Bible, such as, you will not have any other gods before me, that say, okay, there are other powers in life. There are angelic powers. There are your fathers and grandfathers. These powers exist, but they are not to be compared with me. I'm the supreme power. And so you've got to kind of put yourself in that way of thinking and consider that these people had big gods and little gods. And at the top of all their gods 
in Greece and in the Near East. And remember, we think of Greece as part of Western civilization and the Near East as Eastern, but not in the ancient world. Greek civilization is part of the ancient Near East civilization. The Greek gods are all the exact same gods as the gods of the Canaanites, and the stories about the Greek gods are the same as the stories about the Canaanite gods. They called them by different names because they spoke different languages, but the god Zeus is the same as the god Baal. They are the same god. And Zeus in Greek is basically the same word as Deus, which means God or Deus. So there's a supreme god who's a storm god, just like Yahweh in the Bible. He has a lot of Yahweh's attributes. And he's over all the rest of them. And his name in Greece is Zeus. In Rome, it's Jupiter. In Palestine, it's Baal, sometimes El, this god. And then he's got wives, one wife in particular, Hera, or Juno, or Asherah. And then he's got a lot of little gods. And they're little gods of rivers and streams. And then they're ancestor gods. And they're gods of your own household. And the gods of your own household, which is what teraphim are, are going to be the ones associated with your family line. So they're totems. And remember that a totem pole or a totem has animal faces that represent ancestors. So they combine the ideas of powers of nature and powers of ancestors. That's what household gods are. If you had Roman history in a high school, they were the lares and penates. The Romans were big on their own household gods, the gods of your own hearth. These cultures had these same things. You had your national gods, the gods of the nation, and you had some idea that maybe there's a supreme fate behind all the nations, and you had your individual family gods. Now, I've got my family gods, and you've got your family gods. If I go over to your house, and I come in underneath your roof, I need to be polite to the gods of your house because they govern that place. So I might put a little incense on the fire that burns in front of the statue of your household god. But they're not my gods. It's just that I'm visiting their space. Over my house, I got my god. So these are just little gods. There's only so much they can do. But they can give me luck. And they can give me advice. Should I plant today or tomorrow? Should I let my son marry this girl or not? Should I let my daughter go to the movies tonight or not? I can get a little advice from my household god. They're not on the same level as the national gods to deal with the high priest and the king and tell you whether to go to war or not. Those are bigger gods. We are little gods here. Well, these little gods exist. And we know that most people living in Israel had these little gods. Another fallacy that we get into in our minds is to think that the Bible comes out of the Hebrew culture. It doesn't come out of Hebrew culture. It comes from prophets who are constantly standing against the Hebrew culture. Occasionally in Israel's history, there were times when most people didn't have these extra little gods around. But if you read the book of Judges and the book of Kings, you find that most people, most of the time, had high places for their local gods or their local area, and they had their little household gods, and they were confused about the national god of Israel, Yahweh. They confused him with Baal. They weren't sure that he really operated outside the geography of Palestine. Most people thought that way. So the prophets would come under divine inspiration and condemn the vast majority of Israelites who were still fooling around with this stuff. 
Well, can you be saved and go to heaven and be confused on stuff like this? Yeah. I mean, if you have faith in the true God and you've also got some other little powers here on the side that you're confused about, no, God is easy to please but hard to satisfy. I don't think that we say that because Roman Catholics have got a bunch of saints and little junior gods, if they trust Jesus for salvation, just because they're fooling around with these other things on the side doesn't mean they're going to be damned, but they ought not to do it. It does not help your life to do it, and God doesn't want people to do it, and he's jealous of it, and he tries to put it aside. That's what these things seem to be. There could be small ones or big ones. Were these small or big? They were little. Can you think of a story where there was a big one? Dagon is not a teraphim. He's a national god. He's a god of the nation of Philistia. We'll get to that, but that's probably these same ones, these little ones. Now there's a time when there's a fully man-sized teraphim in the Bible. Teraph. You're not going to think of it. Is there a famous story? It's what Michal used to deceive Saul. When David escaped, she took a teraphim, put it in the bed, put goat's hair on it, and it was man-sized, so they thought it was David in there. And it gave David time to escape. Remember that? That's in 1 Samuel 19. So, if you don't remember the details on that, you can read it. But you have a man-sized statue. Saul's family had these things. So, she was able to put one of them in the bed and make it look like David. Teraphim were used for divination. In Ezekiel 21.21, Zechariah 10.2, it says you consult these things. They're also associated with the ephod in Hosea 3.4, Judges 17.5, and Judges 18.14-20. And remember what the ephod was. The ephod the high priest wore, but it had a square pouch on it with Urim and Thummim in it that they used to consult to find out what God's will was. So the true place you go to get divination, should we go up against these people in battle or not? Yes or no? You consult the ephod. Which tribe was guilty of eating during the battle, says King Saul? Well... The Urim and Thummim say the tribe of Benjamin. Which household? Oh, they keep consulting the ephod, the household of Saul. Which person? Oh, it turns out Jonathan. Jonathan ate food during the battle. You remember that story in 1 Samuel 14. You're consulting the ephod. Well, teraphim were consulted the same way, so that they're linked with the ephod in the passage. So now we know something about them, and there's also an English word that's the same as the word teraphim. Now, we could sit here and you could try to think of it. Anybody think right off the bat what word we have in English that is teraphy? means roughly the same thing, only in a modern scientific way. It's got the same consonant. Therapy. Hey, remember T-N-T-H, P-N-T-H, you're saying. Therapuo in Greek, it doesn't quite mean divination, it means healing. But healing is mixed up with magic and stuff like that in the ancient world. So it's a very close word. So if you get confused about what teraphim are, remember the word therapy, and remember that in pre-modern cultures that's connected up with witch doctors and consulting spirits and finding out what's wrong. That's what teraphim are. That's as much as we know about them. If they had more precise meanings, we don't know. Why did Rachel take them? Well, for a while, it was popular in scholarship to say that these gods were connected with inheritance. Whoever inherited the household gods inherited the property. Both the gods are the heart. Stealing the gods 
is the next phrase says, steal the heart of Laban. So stealing the gods and stealing the heart are parallel here. Comment on that in a minute. That's why it's unfortunate that our Bibles don't translate these things literally. If you don't have the fox, and even foxes steal the wits instead of steal the heart, but your other Bibles are going to say, Jacob deceived Laban, or something like that, and then you miss the parallel. Steal the gods, steal the heart, are right next to each other. This is the heart of your family, and the argument has been, well, Rachel stole these so Jacob could inherit. Now, what's wrong with that argument? <laughs> Obviously, Jacob was not going to inherit. They're fleeing to another land. So it makes no sense for her to steal them as some type of legal proof. Moreover, it wouldn't work as legal proof. Once this idea went out and everybody said, hooray, this is it, she's stealing them for legal inheritance, then about, you know, a year later, scholars said, wait a minute, no, this won't work. <laughs> In the first place, he's not going to inherit anything. In the second place, Laban could always say, hey, these were stolen. In fact, he does. He goes before the court right here in this passage and says, my gods were stolen. If you ever think you're going to show these gods up later on and say, hey, Laban gave them to us, and now we're supposed to inherit. It's not going to work because Laban has made a claim publicly in front of all the kinsmen that's being recorded there by a scribe who's taken all this down. That Laban explicitly says, hey, these were stolen and I did not give them to you. It's unlikely that she took them with that in mind. Well, another possibility is that, like most people in the ancient world, she knew that Yahweh was the supreme God, but she also thought there were these other gods. All of our Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox friends think exactly the same way. Who do you pray to? Well, I pray to St. Christopher, and I pray to Mary, and sometimes if I'm really in trouble, I pray straight to Jesus himself. Jesus is the supreme, but there's all these other ones out here. We can talk to them, too. They can help us out. They can appear to us. Give us information. Help us out in our daily lives so we don't have to bother Jesus with it. They're not. Laban's heart is what's stolen. It's a parallel idea. Yeah, stole the heart. So maybe Rachel is thinking, well, it'd be good to have these gods along too. And later on we find that people did take gods along with them and that they're buried under the terebinth at Bethel. But I don't think that works either. The reason I don't think it works is because I think if Rachel had respected these gods, she wouldn't have sat on them. Again, think of how Roman Catholics treat their statues and holy cards. If you've got a baseball card of a saint, which is what a holy card is, and it's been blessed. Now, I remember as a kid in Catholic school, kids would buy holy cards of St. Teresa or somebody else. They would have their statistics on the back, you know, their batting average and everything else. And... The picture on the front, and then they would want the priest to bless it. If he blessed it, then you could really talk to Teresa through this card here. It was a telephone, a little window, and you kept it with you. Well, you don't spit on that. You don't stomp on that. You don't mistreat that. You sure don't bleed on it. So, if she has respect for these gods and thinks they're important, she wouldn't have sat on them. The fact that she sits on them and says that she's on her period, whether she is or not, the way it's written indicates that she's lying, that she's not. Otherwise, it would say it happened that Rachel, the manner of women, was on her and she sat on them. But instead, it says she sat on them and then she claims the manner of women was on her. Even so, that's no respect. 
In fact, that's gross disrespect. So I don't think we can impute any residual idolatry and confusion to Rachel at this point. In fact, quite the opposite. It would seem that she is rejecting and humiliating the gods of her father's household. And if anything, this would indicate, strongly indicate conversion and the full acceptance of Jacob and his God, Yahweh, in opposition to all of these, which are being degraded. That, to me, makes the most sense. No, I don't reject that. The suggestion is sometimes made that these were made out of precious metals and she was taking them because of their worth. The only problem that I have with that in terms of the text, and it's the same problem all the rest have, is nothing is said about that here. If it is said she stole the silver teraphim, <laughs> we'd be on much better ground to say she was really interested in the silver. And we don't know for sure. These might have been made of precious metals, but they might have been ancient and traditional, and they might have been like voodoo things made of hair and cloth and wood or something that had been charmed. So it's possible that she's taking them because of their economic wealth, but that doesn't seem to be the direction the passage is moving in. Well, that raises another question. Is it right to destroy, deface, or steal other people's idols? Somebody's got an idol, can you just take it and... Doing them a favor, go to your Catholic friend's house and go in there, get in their car and take away their St. Christopher medal. But they ought not to have it, so you just take it away. I don't think so. I think there are times in history when that is appropriate, such as at the Reformation, when you had the iconoclastic movement. All this stuff has to be broken up. It doesn't matter who owns it. God owns everything. And there are times when you've got to break all this stuff. God told Gideon to tear down the altar and the statue that belonged to the people of his town and burn it up. And they weren't happy about it. It wasn't his property, but God told them to do it. I think there are times to do it. God approves of it sometimes. But I would say normally we're not supposed to deal with idols that way. We're supposed to get people to break their own. Or if an entire society says the society is going to turn from it and the minority of people won't go along with it, that minority may just have to lose their idols because the society as a whole is being converted and they'll tear them down. Now, verse 20. As I mentioned, the language here is quite parallel. Jacob stole the heart of Laban the Aramean. There's a parallel to Rachel stealing his gods. The gods are at the heart of your life. They're at the heart of Laban's life. And I think that Rachel perceives, I think this is another dimension to it, that Rachel perceives that her father's wickedness is tied to his idolatry. And to break his idolatry is to attack the place in his life where his sin is located. And she does that. And what this means, practically speaking, is that it paraphrase right. Jacob stole the wits of Laban by leaving while Laban was away. But there are a lot of different ways to say that in Hebrew. And to say it this way creates this parallel. The word steal occurs eight times in this passage. I've given you the verses here. In a sense, it's about stealing. And Laban's going to accuse Jacob of stealing. Jacob's going to say, I was afraid you were going to steal from me. I never stole anything from you. If anything was stolen from you, I paid it back. If anybody robbed you of your sheep, I paid it back out of my own pocket. So the whole business of who's stealing from whom is coming to a climax here. And this climax language is seen in the numbers that show up next. Verse 21, Jacob fled. All that was his, again, that was his, not that was Laban's. It's the way it's written. 
He arose and crossed the river, that's the Euphrates, setting his face toward the hill country of Gilead. Well, in 1518, God says the Euphrates is going to be the extent of the land ultimately given to Abraham. You really don't get that till the day of Solomon. But when you cross the Euphrates, when you leave the area between the Tigris and Euphrates, remember the Tigris is on the far side. So the area between the rivers, which is Aram, this is where we are. Aram Nacharayim is the name of the place. Aram of the double river. Nachar means river. Ayam means is a dual form. It means twin. Aram of the twin rivers is where we've been. And he is an Aramean. Now we cross that river into the land promised to Abraham on the other side of the Euphrates. So Laban is about to cross this river too. Laban was sold on the third day. Remember, they were a three-day journey apart. So that's how long it took for the news to get to him. And he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him a seven-day journey and caught up with him in the hill country of Gilead. Now, if you read this as it took him seven days to catch up, that's not likely. Because you've got about 400 miles to go here, and Jacob has got babies in arms and all these flocks and everything else. He is not making 50, 60 miles a day. So this has taken longer than seven days. But again, when you look at it and think about it, it doesn't say that from the day Laban heard about it, it took him seven days to catch up. It says that once he set out, it was a seven days journey or it took him seven days to catch up. Laban hears about it three days later. He goes back to his camp, sees it is true, finds out the household gods have been stolen. I don't know that anybody else was supposed to go into the room where those gods were. Then he has to call together his kinsmen. They're all in different places. Now, some of them may have been with him shearing the sheep, but he's got to organize this army and then set out. And after seven days, he catches up with him. But seven here is your Sabbath number. This is the climax of the passage. It's where things are going to get settled. Sabbath day, the day of judgment, has arrived. And God is going to pass judgment. Immediately next thing we read is that God appears to him and says, you will not pass judgment. He forbids him to exercise any type of sabbatical day of Laban <laughs> judgment here. No day of Laban is going to take place. No pronouncing of good and evil. Remember that the knowledge of good and evil has to do with pronouncing judgment in the Bible. And here it is, just the same as in Genesis 2 and 3. Only mature people are allowed to pass judgments of good and evil. Laban, of course, being sort of the sheik of his clan would have been in a position to do that. But God says, you won't do it. I'm the one who does it. In this situation, you're not allowed to pass judgment. This doesn't mean, when it says, guard yourself lest you speak to Jacob, good or evil, doesn't mean you can't say anything to Jacob. Laban's not in sin by saying stuff to him. But he would be in sin if he'd acted against him. You may not act. You may not pass judgment. He tries to get around that by getting his kinsmen to pass judgment, but it doesn't work. The kinsmen are here, and this is important because they are the context in which everything takes place. And now we get the setting, verse 25. When Laban caught up with Jacob, and then we're told, Jacob had pegged his tent in the mountains, and Laban along with his kinsmen had pegged in the hill country of Gilead. Now, this is battle language. we got two camps. 
over against each other. The Philistines are on this side, and Saul and his army are on that side. And Goliath comes out. That's what we've got going here. This is very formal. We're over against each other. Two camps. Now we're going to come together and have a meeting. The kinsmen are going to be there. And everything's going to be said for their benefit because they have to judge. If they decide that Jacob is guilty, they're going to side with Laban and they're going to punish Jacob and they're going to take the girls and the flocks and take them all back to Laban land. If they decide that Jacob is innocent and Laban's guilty, they're going to let Jacob go and probably chew out Laban for bringing them along and wasting their time. But there's not much Jacob can do about it. He doesn't have any army with him. His sons are too young to do anything. See, the oldest any of his sons would be is 13. Or 12, really. That's not old enough to do much. I mean, a 12-year-old can shoot a gun, but pulling a longbow and shooting an arrow takes adult musculature. They don't have that. Holding a sword, big heavy sword, that all requires more than being 12 years old. Then you got some women here, maybe some servants. Well, we know he has some servants, but that's it. Not much. So we're going to have a trial, basically. And the word that's used is quarrel, translated here. Some have said this is a lawsuit. They want to press that word quarrel into a very technical meaning. Well, it doesn't really mean that in Hebrew. It just means a fairly formal event where there is a contest that's going to be settled by judges. And it doesn't have to be in a courtroom setting. Here it's fairly informal. But now you've got the scene in mind. You've got a bunch of guys around here. You've got to persuade them that you're right and the other guy's wrong. Because they're the ones with the spears. And you want the guys with the spears on your side. Now I think in Laban's mind, I didn't mention this, but when Laban crosses the river and comes into the land promised to Abraham and then God appears to him, in Laban's mind, this is the God of this area over here. I'm now on his turf. I've now crossed over into, it doesn't say Yahweh, and that's because the text wants to emphasize that this is a supreme God over all the other gods. But I think in Laban's mind, this is the God of your father. Hey, the God of your father appeared to me. You want to go back to your father's house, and why did you steal my God? I'm letting you go back to your God. I respect your God. Why did you steal my God? He's got a very local idea of God. Hey, now that I'm over here across the Euphrates, I'm I'm respecting your God. But you didn't respect mine when you were back on my turf. That's part of his appeal to the peanut gallery of the kinsmen here. So Laban will accept this appearance from God. He's not going to challenge it because in his mind, this is the God who governs things over here on the other side of the Euphrates. So he's not going to contest that. He'll accept it. But now he makes his speech and he's playing to the other guys. Remember, we've got a jury here. What did you mean to do? Stealing my heart and leading my daughters away like captains of the sword. Now he starts off by saying stealing my heart and he ends by saying why did you steal my gods? So again, that shows a link between the two. His heart is his God. Where your heart is, that's where your God is. True of us as Christians, if we worship true God, Jesus, then that's where our heart is. That's where Laban's heart is. 
Why did you steal my heart? Then he says, leading away my daughters, my daughters, not your wives, my daughters. He's going to insist that, hey, they were never really given to Jacob in marriage, in the full marriage. We won't get to that this week. But his claim is going to be, hey, these were the kind of wives that stay in the father's house and the husband visits from time to time. But they remain with the father. And the children belong to the father. And only partly to the husband. The husband has conjugal rights, but that's it. The girl stays in her father's house. That's basically what he's going to claim before all these guys. Nothing much Jacob can say, unless they all know Jacob personally and know that he worked for these women and there was an original deal. They're out in the wilderness here. Laban can make this claim. That's what he's going to claim. They're my daughters. And he says, you led them away like captives with the sword. Obviously, these girls didn't want to go with you. They wanted to stay home with me. You forced them to leave. I have seen this situation in so many church situations, just like this. Well, obviously, my daughters, my daughters wouldn't go with you. You must have forced them to leave. Laban's very self-deceived, I think. And then he plays to the audience. Oh, you secretly fled and stole away from me without even telling me. There's that word steal again here used in this sense. You didn't even tell me. Now I would have sent you off with joy and song and drum and lyre. Well, we know better than to believe that from reading the story. But he's playing to this audience here. He knows Jacob doesn't believe that. And the narrator of Genesis knows that we don't believe it. But Laban's playing to the kinsman here. Hey! You denied me the opportunity to kiss my grandchildren and daughters. And then he comes to the crunch of it. He says, you have done foolishly now. And remember, the word fool in the Bible is a strong word. A rod is for the back of a fool. He says, you've done foolishly and it lies in my hand's power to punish you, to harm you. You deserve to be beat. And I could beat you. But I respect your father's God. See, this is where he moves. He's very skillful here. Yesterday night, the God of your father said to me, saying, Be on your watch. Don't speak to Jacob, good or evil. So I'm not going to pass judgment. So, well, you wanted to go home to your father's house and back to your gods, but why did you steal mine? That's skillfully worded to bring to this climax point. I respect your God. You didn't respect mine. You've stolen all this stuff from me. You snuck away. You hurt me. But I'll forgive all that. All that I'll have to overlook. But why did you steal my God? I respect you. It is designed to put Jacob in a very bad light before the audience. Oh, if you wanted to go home and back to your gods, I would have sent you off to festivity. But you had to steal my gods too. Well, Jacob makes his speech. And remember, this is before the assembled kinsmen. Verses 31 to 32. Jacob answered and said to Laban, Indeed, I was afraid, for I said to myself, Perhaps you will even rob me of your daughters. Then he says, and with whomever you find your gods, he shall not live here in front of our kinsmen. If you recognize anything of yours with me, you take it. Now Jacob says, look, I was afraid you were going to forcibly rob me, since that's your character. He doesn't expand on it. Maybe he did on this occasion. Maybe he had a lot more to say. Maybe these speeches were much longer. One could suspect they probably were. But what we're given here is the gist of it, and Jacob will have an opportunity to expand on it later on. But I think Jacob can count on the fact that a person like Laban gets his own reputation. 
Laban has to be known for the kind of person he is. Jacob isn't the only person who's cheated. So Jacob, really all he needs to say is, hey, you guys know what Laban's like. I was afraid he was going to rob me of his daughters too. So we snuck out of town so he wouldn't have a chance to do anything else. You all remember how he tricked me with Rachel and Leah. You were at the wedding, weren't you? They were all there at the wedding. They knew about it. So he doesn't need to say much. And then he says he doesn't know anything about the gods. And this is why it's been important to insist that he didn't know and Rachel knew. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.